So we are continuing in Isaiah. And then this Sunday, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 9. Now, last week, we looked at verses 1 through 5. And today, we're going to be looking, focusing in on verses 6 and 7. But I'm going to be reading at this time from verse 1 through verse 7, this entire section, just to give a sense of it. So you can find this on page 683 in the Bibles in the chairs if you'd like to follow along. Isaiah chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. And starting at verse 6 of chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Father, we pray that you would guide us at this time. That you would guide us through the power of your Holy Spirit. That we would have wisdom and discernment to understand your truth. And to grow in the knowledge of your love and your goodness toward us. Father, we pray that you would just lift up your son, Jesus Christ, in this time. In Christ's wonderful name, amen. As we've been going through Isaiah chapter 9, we've seen that there's this very clear statement throughout this prophecy of Isaiah. And the very clear statement is this, 
God has went to the people of God in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And he's made clear that though God has given them his law, his prophets, his covenant, his promises, though God has given them everything, they have too quickly and too consistently turned away from him and went chasing after false gods and false ways of comfort or false ways of security or, or pleasures or, or desires that were against his law rather than in alignment with God's holiness and his truth. So you find yourself, and, I say, and you find a people who truly are in a state where they cannot save themselves. But they keep trying. They keep trying. Whether it's King Ahaz with his scheming and working with other nations, or whether it's uh, the false prophets or even the priest. So many people, all these different people in authority and power from the highest to the lowest in society, the vast majority of them have come to this understanding that Yes, God is important to some degree. But by and large, most of my life, it, it all has to do with what I can do in my power, in my strength, according to my will and my desires. So again, we find ourselves in Isaiah, in Isaiah 9, where God is making clear that We need a Savior. And that Savior has to be God. Only God can save us. We can't save ourselves. So this is a powerful passage. It's been building up to this. We already saw this alluded to in Isaiah 7. In Isaiah 7, we saw this prophecy. In Isaiah 7, 14... Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And what Emmanuel means is God with us. God with us. And we see where ultimately that prophecy, and so many of these prophecies in the Old Testament have multiple meanings. They've fulfilled in the time and then they can have a other meaning in the future. So we see that Isaiah 7.14 ultimately is pointing not only to the time of Isaiah, but is ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ. So much so that in the gospel, this very passage of Isaiah 7.14 is quoted as saying, Jesus has fulfilled this prophecy. That Jesus is the one born of the virgin, the one who is Emmanuel, the one who is God with us. The ultimate sign that we need a Savior and the only one who can save us is God himself. So this passage that we're looking at now in Isaiah 9, it's continuing to develop on what was stated in Isaiah 7.14. And we're going to see here a fuller understanding of this Emmanuel, God with us. And ultimately, it's descriptions of Jesus Christ. 
So if you start in at Isaiah 9, verse 6, it says this, For to us a child is born. So here's this child. To us a son is given. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Here we see where God, in his desire to make a way for us to be right with him, to make a way where we can be saved from our sins, where we could be freed from the tyranny of the devil, the tyranny and enslavement and bondage to the world, and the tyranny and enslavement and oppression of our fallen sinful condition, that though we in our sin are in a state of death, God is going to make a way of life. And that way is in the Son. The Son who is given. So we see here that God is the one who saves people. God gives us what we need to be saved. And here, ultimately, what we need to receive is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And just to help us understand what this fully means, we see where the Gospels, where this is quoted from and this is, this is drawn from. So if you look at Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, you have this scene where the shepherds are out in their field. They're keeping watch over their flock by night. And in verse 9, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. That's an appropriate response. But verse 10, But the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all people. This is powerful that this son whom God has given, this one who will be born, isn't just the way of salvation for the people of Israel. It isn't that he's just the way of salvation for the Jews or those who dwell in Jerusalem or Judea. But this one who is born is going to be the savior of every tribe, nation, language, people of Everyone who will come to faith and come to believe. Again, verse 11 of Luke 2. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. So here's this prophecy that from David on his throne, from his house, his kingdom would be forever. In the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And then if you go down to verse 14, you have the heavenly host, this angel chorus singing out verse 11, uh, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. There it is. There's the proclamation of peace, peace. And that is great news. That is good news of great joy. Because remember, that is the the dilemma that we've been finding in Isaiah as we've been going through the prophecy of Isaiah. And that's the dilemma through the whole Old Testament. That's that's what we saw in Isaiah 6 when when Isaiah's in the temple and he 
And, and, and the presence of God is, is made manifest. And he realizes that, that he is a sinful man. And, and God is holy. And, and he, he's going to be destroyed. And that God graciously sends the burning coal to touch his lips as, as this cleansing, as taking away his sin and, and giving him holiness by God's grace and mercy. This is, this is the dilemma is how can a holy, just God forgive sin? How can he do that? He does it by sending his son to take that sin so that we could have his holiness. Further build on these words of Isaiah 9, verse 6, for, un, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Again, another very important passage of Scripture that takes these words and helps us understand what they mean for Christ is John chapter 3. John chapter 3, if you go here and you'll see the emphasis given on the son who is given, the son who is born, and what it means that in him there is peace what that means that in Jesus Christ is good news of great joy. So if you look at John chapter 3, starting at verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So here's his son in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. This is God's only son. This is God's eternally begotten Son, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him... Now, what does it mean to believe in Him? In this context of John 3, in the context of the Gospel, to believe in Jesus Christ means He is who He says He is. He is who the Scriptures say He is. Trust Him I know that he on the cross died for my sins, that in him there is life, there is peace with God. I I can be a child of God. I can know God's love and forgiveness, that Jesus is my everything. That's, That's what it means to believe in him. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then if you go on, that's a very common verse, John three sixteen. But if you go on to the next few verses, you see how powerfully it explains what this means that God sends his son. So if you go to John 3, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What John 3, uh, verses 14 through 21, this whole section is saying is this, all of us are already under condemnation because of our sins, because of our rebellion to God. We need a Savior. And God sends His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we can be made right with God, so that we can have peace, so that we can know God's blessing and know God's love. 
Again, it says in verse 18, the focus here is believing in the name of the only Son of God. So this Isaiah 9, verse 6, is a very powerful one, and it's woven throughout the Scriptures from the Old and New Testament. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and as Isaiah 9, verse 6 goes on, and the government, and the government, and the authority structure overall, and the government, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. So this is a way of saying Jesus is king of kings, lord of lords. It doesn't matter what earthly government or nation or tribe or people that you're from or you grew up in or what authority is over you, that ultimately for every human being, there is one above all. And his name is highest and his authority is highest and he is most glorious. And the government shall be on his shoulder and his name shall be called. And they have these beautiful names for this son of God who is Jesus Christ who will come as the Savior. Wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. What a beautiful, beautiful description of who Christ is. If you look at Colossians 2, 1 through 3, you see where Paul is, is, is developing this idea of Christ as the wonderful counselor. In Colossians 2, uh, Paul says that, that their hearts should be encouraged. He says this in verse 2 of Colossians 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mysteries, which is in Christ. In whom, so in Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wow. Isn't that amazing? In Jesus Christ, in him is all wisdom, all knowledge, all understanding, all comfort, all peace, all that is true, all that is lovely, all that is life, all that is good, all that is right, all that is proper. It's all in Jesus Christ. That in Jesus Christ is this, these riches beyond comprehension. So not only is he the king of kings and lord of lords, but he's wonderful. Wonderful. Nothing else compares to Jesus Christ. In him is all the treasures and riches of God. As it continues on, my wonderful counselor next is mighty God. We understand this again as Isaiah 7:14 points ahead that Jesus Christ that he is going to be Emmanuel, God with us, that Jesus is God. That's why we understand the as the scriptures describe that there is one God 
in three persons, that there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in the Godhead, there is might and power and love and holiness and justice. So this Son who is born... This one given is the wonderful counselor, mighty God. And then verse 3, the everlasting Father. Now, this is an interesting title given for Christ. Everlasting Father. And for me, the best passage that helps us understand what it means that Jesus is the everlasting Father is in John 10. John 10. So if you go to John 10, you're going to see this this interplay where Jesus is speaking about how he and the Father are one. How they are in complete unity. And their desire is to save the sheep, to grow the sheep, to guard the sheep, and to give the sheep eternal life. So if you look at this John 10, starting at verse 27... Jesus says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. That's that's good news. Very good news. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What comfort that is. That's comfort. If God has a hold of you in his love and in his grace, (laughs) there ain't nothing going to tear you from his grip. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. When I was in college, I went to a friend's house and he had this massive dog, beast. I think that was his name, Beast, because you, you didn't know whether it was a dog or a beast. This giant animal. And the favorite game is he, he had these old T-shirts, and, and he would take a, one end of the T-shirt, and he would throw it out, and that dog would grab the other end of that T-shirt. And, and you knew what you were asking for. If you were willing to enter into this match, as soon as you held that and you extended that out, and that dog took a hold of the other than that t-shirt. Prepare for battle. You will be thrown down, drug across the yard. You may get up. I got up a few times and yanked and pulled. And I threw that dog to the side. And he drugged me 10 feet. And I held on. And I maybe made it for 10 minutes. Until I had to let go. Mercy! The beast is won. Because once his teeth gripped on something, he was not going to let go. Never. But there's someone who has a far more powerful and holy and true grip than the beast. And we see it depicted here. God in his sovereign power, in his love, and in his grace, so takes a hold of one of his children who believe in him that he holds you in his hands and he guards you and he keeps you forever. That's what Jesus is saying here. 
in John 10. This is this everlasting father aspect of him. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29, my father has given them to me. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. This is Jesus making clear. My daddy's bigger. He's stronger. He's smarter. There's no one that can take one of God's people out of my father's hands. There's no one who could take them out of my hands. So you have this depiction of God. So caring and compassionate that he holds you in his hands and so strong and mighty that no one and nothing can take you out of them. It's the most beautiful image. So we see here in Jesus where Jesus is this everlasting father, that he is carrying out the will of his father. And that's what Jesus goes on in John 10. In verse 30, it says this, I and the father are one. Absolute unity of purpose and will and desire to save the people of God. So this Jesus, he's the wonderful counselor. In him is all the riches and treasures of the wisdom of God. He is mighty God. He is everlasting Father. And he is the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. There's a lot of conflict all around us in the world, in our lives. There's all kinds of forms of warfare and hostility and difficulty. It seems that peace can be very elusive and difficult to find. But ultimately in Scripture, there is one area that we are in the most vital need of peace. There is one area that we are in the most vital life and death need of reconciliation. And ultimately where we need peace the most and where we need reconciliation the most is with God. Is with God. So when we understand this, that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, again, I take you in our passage, I take you to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 develops out this clearest understanding of how Jesus is the Prince of Peace, how he is the source of peace for those who believe and trust in him. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, you have the word peace woven in here one, two, three, four times from verses 14 through 17. This is the, what this entire passage is building up to is how it is is that we find peace. How it is. So Ephesians 2, verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off. So what Ephesians is dealing with is this. In the Old Testament, you have two categories of people. You either had Jews, which were the people of God, the descendants of Abraham, the children of the promise, Or you had Gentiles, which were non-Jews. So you had Jew and Gentile. 
So Ephesians is, is developing out this understanding of how in Jesus Christ there is one new family. Where in Christ it no longer matters whether you're Jew or Gentile, free or slave, male or female. No, all the promises of salvation in Christ are to all, whether you're barbarian, Scythian, Greek. It doesn't matter what your background, what your last name, what your heritage. It doesn't matter how pious or how wretched a sinner you've been. In Jesus Christ, he makes one new people that are loved by God. So he brings peace. So Ephesians 2 makes this clear, starting at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So this is this blood where Jesus dies on the cross and his blood is, is, is poured out. That brings us near because it cleanses us of all our sins. Verse 14, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. So this is Jew and Gentile, that, that we're one. And is broken down in his flesh to the dividing wall of hostility. He talks about abolishing the law and the commandments that he might create one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who were near. So ultimately, how is it that Jesus is the Prince of Peace? He's the Prince of Peace because we understand that the number one dilemma and problem and issue that every human being faces is that we are sinners. And the wages of sin is death. And the full penalty of sin is eternal conscious torment, the wrath of God. So how Jesus brings peace is that we understand that in Jesus Christ, we see the truth of the gospel, that we must be saved from God, from God's holy, just wrath. God so loves the world that he sends his son, Jesus Christ. This is the son given this is the one who is born so that we are saved by God. That's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. We're, we're saved from God's holy just wrath for, I mean, by God in his love and in his holiness and truth. And we're saved for God to be his children to enter into his blessings and his promises. So in that, we see how Jesus is truly the prince of peace. And it is only once we know that peace with God that we can begin living in peace with one another. People talk about unity, or they talk about peace. The only source of unity and peace is in the Son, is in Jesus Christ. Because for true unity and true peace, there must be a death and there must be a resurrection.
of the Son of God. So as the passage continues after these glorious names of verse 7, it says this, And the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Oh, this is good news. This is good news. This is why we long for the return of Jesus Christ. When Christ comes back and there's the new heaven and new earth, and all God's people are gathered together in that new heaven and new earth, there's no more primaries. There's no more general elections. There's no voting. There's no electoral college. That is over. Because when Jesus comes again and he is on his throne and his government is established, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is glorious. Glorious. Of the increase of his government and of peace. There's peace again. There will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And that's the key thing. It's the zeal of the Lord. It's the power of the Lord. Only God can save us. Not only can we not save ourselves until the Holy Spirit makes us alive and gives us the gift of faith, we don't want to save ourselves. We think we're fine. But God in His grace makes us alive to see our need for Him and to believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we could have true peace and true life. It's the zeal of the Lord who does this. It is to Him all glory and honor and praise is to be given.